You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years' experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our website and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live on YouTube right now, so be sure to subscribe to at IN Magazine so you get a notification and know that you can join us, add comments, let us know how we're doing comment on Jeff's attire, however you want to do it. (laughs) Sure. Jeff, how are you doing this week? Uh, Super self-conscious now, but before that was pretty good. I feel bad about that. I apologize for that remark. (laughs) Nothing meant by it. I really just want to like make something up and floundered. Uh, Anna, how are you doing this week? (laughs) Fine. (laughs) That's good. That's good. All right. Well, before we get started with this week's episode... We have a word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. And we're back. And before we get rolling, just a reminder that you can look in the description below, click the link, and get yourself a free sample of Oil Eater. All right, our first story this week. Boeing might lose billions if it cancels 737 MAX 10. Boeing's 737 MAX passenger jets have caused serious problems, like the two deadly crashes that grounded the planes worldwide for 18 months. Now, there's a chance the company's latest jet won't make it to production. According to Barron's, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun hinted in a recent interview that the 737 MAX 10 may have to be dropped from production. The company already has 639 orders for the MAX 10, and if canceled, those customers may turn to Airbus. The result could cost Boeing billions in potential sales. The primary issue for the MAX 10 is commonality on the flight deck. The company wants Congress to extend a deadline for making changes to the MAX 10's flight deck. Otherwise, pilots would need separate training for the MAX 10, and that could cause some issues for airlines. Boeing officials are confident that flight deck commonality commonality issues won't derail the MAX 10 or its production. But Anna Calhoun says his company still has to face the possibility of moving forward without its new jet. Feels like Calhoun's playing chicken. I I guess it's like, "Ah, why not? What's one more thing? Mm -hmm. Like we've been talking for years now about how much this company can withstand. And I think if the phrase too big to fail applies anywhere, it might actually be here because like despite the brand damage that took place with this Max issue, um, those two crashes a few short years ago, 
The Boeing name is still strong enough that um, I just read this week, Ethiopian Airlines, one of the airlines that experienced a fatal crash in 2019 that killed all 157 people on board, has recently taken delivery of a new 737 MAX from Boeing. Mm. Um, So just to show you how much that brand has recovered. Yeah. um, That the airline where the crash happened bought another one. Right. They bought another one. Um, And so, you know, those who believe that 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 Max brand was destroyed, you know, uh, beyond the point of return um, were wrong. You know, Boeing still has a lot riding on this um, this plane and obviously creating a new wide body model is very important to that. Um, They reported uh, this delivery to Ethiopian um, Airlines as part of its June orders, which featured the busiest month for 737 MAX deliveries since the grounding ended in late 2020. Right. With 43 of the planes being delivered to customers. So deliveries kind of when they make their money, right? Um, Industry observers believe it to be a sign that demand for the plane is returning to pre-crash levels. We're back to ground zero. So even though Calhoun is trying to downplay what losing the 10 would mean for Boeing, I think that um, it's clear that this model, which already has, as you mentioned, so many orders on the books, is really critical for the company. And as travel ramps back up, this is not the time to remove (laughs) the wide body model from your portfolio and expect it to not be a big deal. So I think he's kind of posturing there a little bit. Mm And while I I think it seems like this is, you know, outside of their control, they're talking about Congress extending this, uh, you know, deadline on on trying to make this work for for their uh, system there. Um, I think they're going to try their best to get their way. And I I looked um, just out of curiosity to see how much Boeing spends on lobbying. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, What's that number? So according to Open Secrets, I don't have the number. Um, According to Open Secrets, which tracks lobbying spend in political donations by corporations, of these 6,933 companies tracked on lobbying spend, Boeing ranks 40th. So pretty high. Yeah. Um, and of the 26,000 companies it tracks um, on contributions, Boeing ranks 87th in mm-hmm. uh, contributions to political candidates, committees, or PACs. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, 87 out of 26,000 yeah, companies. Yeah. Still, you know. Pretty, incredibly pretty high. high. Yeah. So they're working on it the only way they know how. <laughs> we'll see what happens. I don't know. Uh, Jeff, you know, the Max 10 is already three years behind schedule. And this just has to have an incredible impact on the supply chain. I agree. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit. But first, I'd like to kind of get you guys' thoughts just on the quote from Calhoun, because it, it struck me. I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I get it, but I wasn't real crazy about it. It was, if you go through the things we've been through, the debts that we've had to accumulate, our ability to respond, our willingness to see things through, even a world without the 10 is not that threatening. Yeah. Now, I get why he has to say that, but it still comes off kind of like what you were alluding to, Anna, like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. we'll just figure it out. Yeah. yeah. Which, that bugs me, I guess. I don't know. Did you guys have a stronger reaction to that or is it just sort of corporate speak at this point? No, I have uh, almost the exact same quote uh, prepared for my comments. And For me, all of this wasn't about his laissez-faire attitude towards whether or not this project will live or die. It was just straight how he's challenging Congress and saying like, hey, maybe you you need us more than we need you. So, I mean, we've seen this in all kinds of aerospace regulation before Mm -hmm. where it's just like, uh, where uh, what was it last time we were talking about it, where 5G was ready to roll out? And they're just like, we're not changing our towers. We're not changing our planes. Government fix it. Um, and it reminded me of the exact same situation. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. See, for me, it really bothered me. Yeah. Because when you look at this, it's not just Boeing. This particular plane has over 600 suppliers. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's 600 companies of varying sizes that also have subcontractors that depend on these planes that were sold being made. Right. And if they're not, if there's adjustments that need to be made for Boeing, yeah, it's something they have to do, but it's sort of an everyday business element to them. It doesn't, it impacts their planning and supply chain, certainly, but it impacts these other companies on a much greater level. Yeah. You look at a company like Spirit, Spirit Aerosystems, when the MAX was shut down, when mm -hmm. it was big enough, they laid off 2,800 people just because the MAX was grounded. Right. Yeah. That year alone in 2020, they law, they reduced their workforce by like 4,500 people. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that was COVID related with people not traveling and aerospace being a mess, but still the impact is huge on all of those suppliers. So it bothers me to have sort of this kind of like, yeah, we'll deal with it. It is what it is. When it's going to impact not only them, but the supply chains, the operational planning associated mm -hmm. with 600 companies and more than that, when yeah. you get into all the people that those companies work with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it bothered me there. It also, when you look at their customers, now Delta is going to buy about a hundred of these planes. They're already on the hook for it. They want to buy them. But when you look at it from Delta's perspective, and you're looking at the cockpit, basically, and you're looking at an industry that is struggling right now to recruit pilots, mm -hmm. and now you've got their work environment, essentially, up in the air and yeah. very uncertain, how difficult is that for Delta, then, to recruit against their competitors that aren't using this plane? Mm -hmm. If they're already in line with Boeing, and you're a pilot, and you've got basically your pick of where you want to go, you know what you got here, you're not sure what you got at Delta, that makes it a, maybe an easier decision to make. Yeah. So I really, it bothers me when some of these CEOs say these things. I know they want to calm everybody down and like you said, basically put Congress in their place, if you will. Yeah. But it just seems like they're really turning a blind eye to all the other people and all the other companies and entities that are impacted mm -hmm. by these decisions. That always happens when we see a company of that scale make such, make similar statements or decisions. You know, yeah. it's we saw the impact of the John Deere strike and its ripple effect. This would have a very similar uh, ripple effect throughout the supply chain. Um, I don't know. And I, I do, I get frustrated because I read his uh, comments. I read most of the interview that he had with Aviation Week, I believe it was. And it was kind of just like poking the bear, like uh, yeah. seeing who's going to flinch first. And it is all about extending this regulatory deadline that's going to allow the jet to enter service without an upgrade to the crew alerting system. And you're right. Like uh, the other thing, Jeff, about um, talking about Airbus is that if you remember in the previous administration, they really Americanized uh, Boeing. And it was like an Amer us versus mm -hmm. them fight where it was Boeing, America versus Airbus, foreign. And maybe he's still leaning into that nationalism a little bit more um, as to, you know, that was kind of shown on Boeing for quite a long time. I don't know yeah. what you think, Anna. Yeah, no, I have a very good point. But I mean, Airbus uses these same suppliers too. And yeah. if they've got a, if they've got a choice and one's easy to work with and one's not, you know, we had a reader write in basically saying that Boeing's going to be the next McDonnell Douglas. Like yeah. that's the way they're trending right now. Now yeah. to Anna's point, probably too big to see that happen immediately. But I don't know. It's it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out on a number of levels. I guess some of the other things that I pulled out, Jeff. He uh, Calhoun said, "This is a risk I'm willing to take. If I lose the fight, I lose the fight." <laughs> I didn't know if you said that exactly, but it was just. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of tone deaf. Yeah. yeah, right. I tell you what, the crash is going to be over before my golden parachute lands. And uh, the other thing he said was, I think our case is persuasive enough to get the necessary extension. And it's I mean, lead with that. Yeah, just, just, say go, that. just go with that. Yeah, man. Just say yeah that. that's enough. 
No. All right. Well, let's move on to another hot mess. No, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Rivian's deliveries ramp up fourfold. Rivian Automotive delivered 4,467 vehicles in the second quarter, boosted by production ramp up and demand. That's nearly four times the deliveries in the previous quarter. The company says it remains on pace to manufacture 25,000 vehicles this year. The report propped up Rivian's stock, which had lost nearly 75% of its value. In March, the company cut uh, 2022 production goals in half due to supply chain shortages. Now, things need to continue to go well for the carmaker that hopes to continue scaling production in normal, uh, normal Illinois and has plans to open a second plant in the Atlanta area in 2025. Jeff, you know, it quadrupled its production, but 25,000 vehicles, that's still not a lot. No, but I, I still feel good about Rivian. Okay. I really do. You know, it's interesting because we talked a couple of weeks ago about Elon Musk basically calling out Rivian and Lucid saying they're done. Oh, they yeah. Have a yeah. He was already chiseling the tombstone. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting because you look at this and this is a lot of money that they've lost. But let's remember, Tesla lost over five billion dollars before right. they made any money. So let's put it to scale. The reason that we've we've always liked Rivian, I think, universally across this panel is the backing of Amazon. Right. That's that's a big deal. And mm -hmm. in this case, it's an even bigger deal because they've got 100,000 vehicles in the sales pipeline just to Amazon. Mm -hmm. they've, they're scheduled to deliver about 10,000 of those this year. So that gives them a nice base to work from. They've also developing three different vehicles. In addition to this transport vehicle, they've got the truck, which right now the only real competition is the F-150 Lightning. Right. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in Lordstown? Who mm -hmm. knows what's going to happen with Tesla? So they've got an electric truck. And then they've also got an SUV that they're looking to develop. Three good markets. Mm -hmm. And in addition to the Tesla, or excuse me, to the um, Amazon deal with the 10,000 that'll be out there by the end of this year, there's still 90,000 in the sales pipeline. Right. They've also got a reported 90,000 in the sales pipeline for the truck and the SUV. That's a lot to grow from. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. a lot in the, the, the pipeline that you can look at as saying, hey, we can leverage this. It's coming. It's coming because it's real. I yeah. mean, when your biggest shareholder, your biggest supporter says, yeah, we're going to buy 90,000 of these things, mm -hmm. that gives you some time. So I thought this was encouraging. I think it sort of reinforces what we've been talking about with Rivian, that they have a really solid base. Mm -hmm. And although it's never a positive thing to say you lost a billion dollars in a quarter, mm -hmm. yeah. you can see where this could turn. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we'll get to the story a little bit later, but when we see the kind of money being sunk into some of, let's say, uh, Amazon's passion projects, uh, you realize <laughs> that having Amazon backing, maybe those coffers are a little bit larger than yeah. uh, people think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, about this uh, Rivian story, some news has come out ever since we uh, posted this on our site, and things look like they might be, you know, changing up a little bit uh, for the company. I don't know if I think I don't know if I would say changing up. Um, I think that um, you know, Jeff Jeff mentioned Elon Musk's comments about Rivian recently, and I you know I think we discussed it felt like grandstanding at the time, even more so now. But you can see why he made those comments, because it's actually a reasonable guess by anyone who has even no knowledge of the EV market. But like under the best of business conditions, it yeah. would be hard to make this work. Right. Mm -hmm. But we know that, um, you know, from a supply chain perspective right now, there's a lot for Rivian to figure out mm -hmm. and there's a lot for every automaker to figure out. So they're not alone there. Um, so while their uh, production numbers are improving, um, and it, I do think that the thrust is there, and I do feel actually bullish on Rivian as well, Jeff, 
Um, it might not be enough in the current climate to necessarily stave off some of the cost-cutting measures that they're going to have to put into place. So um, um, after this story broke, uh, we learned that the company's CEO, R.J. Scaringe, is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah, Had issued a memo later that evening that said the company is well-positioned, um, but they need a good way to grow sustainably. And as a result, they are implementing some changes across Rivian, including, quote, prioritizing certain programs and stopping some, halting certain non-manufacturing hiring, uh, and adopting major cost down efforts to reduce material spend and operating expenses. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, they're slashing, just not slashing and burning. I think they're going to it sounds yeah. like they're going to cut some jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's something we'll know more about actually very soon. Yeah. Um, near term, I think this will tug at Rivian stock a little bit again, um, which has struggled, yeah. but there might not be a way around it. And you see tons of automakers initiating layoffs right now, Tesla included. Yeah. Um, and if not layoffs, then furloughs or short-term stuff. Um, so they're not alone out there. And it looks like, um, I don't know, it looks like more of a threat, I guess, when you don't have a well-established record of success to fall back on like a GM does. Right. Or, you know, you see those layoffs and you think, okay, well, it's summer, it's, they're cutting yeah. a shift and they'll be back up, right? When Rivian does it, it's like, ah, oh, what's happening? Yeah. But I think we have to remember that right now the conditions are such that everybody is struggling, no matter who you are. Rivian um, has a lot going for it, though. I do. I do agree. So Rivian's plant in normal Illinois will be capable of producing 200,000 vehicles annually by 2023. I was wondering if some of those cuts were almost in preparation as to what's going to grow in the Atlanta, Georgia area and maybe be replaced there. Possibly. I mean, when you look at that number, that's interesting because Ford just came out with some numbers saying they're looking to up production of the F-150 Lightning just because of demand mm-hmm. to up to 150,000 units next year. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's exponentially more. That's like three times more than what they were initially going to do. But the demand is so strong and they're still projecting like a year or two delay in being able to deliver to mm-hmm. everyone who wants one. Yeah. So that's huge. <laughs> and what that kind of it sort of sets the the pace, if you will, for a company like Rivian because the F-150 got out there, it worked. Right. It's a good vehicle. That's what's going to be the ultimate, ultimate litmus test, obviously, mm-hmm. for Rivian and all these other folks. It's great to be able to talk about an awesome vehicle. It's got to be an awesome vehicle once you yeah. get it out there. So. Yeah. And I mean, uh, if you look at Rivian's truck, EV truck, it's a little bit, I see it having... Um, an easier entry to market along with the uh, like F-150 Lightning rather than the Cybertruck, which might yeah. be a little bit harder sell. Well, in early reports, the people like the Rivian in terms of how it handles, yeah, how yeah. it drives. It's It's been very positive. If they can just make sure those batteries don't catch on fire like yeah. they do in their plant. Yeah, they good. need that shovel. <laughs> um, no, and I mean, maybe if they could get it uh, sooner, because like, we keep hearing about delays with the Cybertruck, there's the demand you talk about for Ford out there, yeah. you know, maybe they can capitalize on that a little bit. Um, I also just wanted to point out that. So in April, Elon Musk said that Tesla was going to produce over 1.5 million cars in 2022. And so just sometimes when we're comparing Rivian and the 25,000, we kind of got to remember that they're just way back there. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Our next most popular story, Panasonic picks us site for multi-billion EV battery plant. On Wednesday, Kansas Governor Laura Kelly announced Panasonic's plans to build a new EV battery factory in DeSoto, Kansas. Panasonic has deals to make batteries for Tesla and Toyota. 
The company will invest $4 billion in the state-of-the-art facility. It is the largest economic development project in Kansas history and will create 4,000 new jobs and average salaries of $50,000. The facility stands to be one of the largest EV battery manufacturing facilities in the United States. The new factory will likely be located at a former Sunflower ammunition plant that closed in the early 1990s and left quite a mess. The Army has already spent about $200 million removing contaminated foundations and trucking out unsafe soil. Jeff, this old factory made gunpowder used in artillery shells and rockets. And if anything, I know that this is going to have some challenges at this site, but we finally found out who that suitor was in Kansas. I mean, even though it was uh, not so secret secret. Yeah. And uh, But I mean, it looks like there's still a little bit of work to do um, in Kansas before anything happens. Yeah. Can, we, can we revisit my favorite quote of all time? Yep. We want to buy these magic beans. We won't tell you where it's going to be, what it's going to be, just uh, that it's going to be great. That is from Kansas State Senator Molly Baumgartner when discussing <laughs> Kansas's decision to uh, basically blindly submit this billion-dollar tax proposal, a tax cut for this company that nobody knew who it was when they were coming in. So it it played out like we found out what was in the beans. Yeah, I mean, didn't you guess that it was going to be Panasonic? I think we. I think we all said it was going to be an EV battery company. I yeah. think that was the rumor that it was Panasonic. But this is interesting, too, for a couple of reasons, not just for knowing what's in the beans, yeah. but also just from a, <laughs> from a market perspective. Um, Panasonic is actually the fourth largest EV battery maker mm -hmm. globally. Okay, So when you look at their competition, which is versus CATL, it's a, um, a Chinese company. Um, they don't have any U.S.-based manufacturing. Their biggest customers, they work with basically everybody, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, number two is LG. The biggest firms there are Ford and GM, okay? Mm -hmm. LG is building facilities here in the U.S. We've talked about that before. Third on the list is BYD. BYD is also a Chinese company. They have U.S. manufacturing, but not for electric vehicle batteries, okay? okay. So with Panasonic being right here in Kansas... Their biggest customers right now are Toyota and Tesla. Yep. Tesla seems to be working with everybody. Okay, mm -hmm. But with Tesla being in Austin, you'd think this facility in um, Kansas, great proximity there in terms of possibly grabbing some market share in terms of supplying or sourcing to, to that facility. You also see a lot of like um, Volkswagen, which is another huge EV maker, probably going to overtake Tesla by the end of next year in terms of the number one EV maker in the world. Big facilities in the southeast. BMW, also we know of in South Carolina. So for all of these companies that are really looking to get on board and expand their EV finger footprint, um, this makes a ton of sense for Panasonic. And things with automotive especially, looking to simplify supply chain, get closer to their suppliers. Panasonic has a great opportunity here with their proximity in the middle of the country, basically, mm -hmm. in terms of getting to all these folks who are especially really, really um, – pushing the EV yeah. movement. So it could be interesting to see what this does for them from a market share perspective and how this impacts these Chinese companies specifically from being so far removed from a lot of these bigger manufacturing plants. Well, and it's my understanding that they're going to be manufacturing an, uh, an entirely new EV battery that's never been made before. So there might be some challenges there. Uh, Anna, I believe that I predicted that the magic beans was <laughs> Panasonic. Oh, okay. But I'm it was sorry. also, no, but I mean, by prediction, it meant that I read a bunch of articles from Asia that all said Panasonic was like it was an open mm -hmm. secret. Yeah. Um, but now that we have finally peered inside this can of magic beans. It's an entire can. <laughs> it's an entire can. 
and as Jeff it's said, as Jeff said, it's not a fingerprint. It's I a thought footprint. they footprint. would be more like dried beans. Are you saying they're like this canned, is no bag of dry beans? Canned beans. This is a large, robust can of moist, ready to eat beans. <laughs> this is so nasty. Mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't even. This is a bunch of brown beans of happiness. I don't think that's how it worked. Mm. Nope. I'm pretty sure this is how it works. Um, I mean, if you're going Jack bean for if you're going bean for bean, you want a moist bean instead of a dry bean, just in general. Jack in the can bean stuff. <laughs> is if it is a magic bean, it could be you know it could it could be sparkly. It's magic. It. Uh, I think we're really let we're the bean really go. on the wrong issue. Uh, yeah, here. I think we're gonna just yeah. pivot. Um, so lean I, in, yeah. lean into beans. No. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I we're don't think you Panasonic. know. Panasonic. Yep. What um, it means. <laughs> we're going to sprout into a different idea. All right. Mm. Yep. So, um, this site is interesting because as you mentioned in the, the, uh, video text, the, it's the former sunflower ammunition plant site, which was first established in 1941 and has long been in disrepair. It's about 9,000 acres. It's reportedly got 427 blighted buildings in disrepair. I saw some pictures of them, yeah. and they are pretty run down. Mm -hmm. uh, so the federal government was fully responsible for the cleanup of this site. Um, but then DeSoto agreed to take 6,000 acres and um, put control of remediation into the hands of a developer. So uh, the community, I think it sounds like, wants to be move, moving forward with you know, parceling some of this land out and putting it to use. Um, they've already given some tracks to K-State, to the community for parks and stuff. Um, but there are some issues to deal with first. According to the Kansas City Star, um, there's still some enormous investments in infrastructure that need to be um, taking place here to support this plant, roads, water, sewer, stuff like that, that needs to be upgraded. Mm -hmm. I think um, the way it's zoned, the idea is that... Um, the revenue from the taxes will go towards that over the course of 20 years. But, mm, you know, how we, know that that. Yeah. we know that. Matter. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the the star suggests that Kansas Kansans um, pay close attention to those specifics in the months and years ahead, um, including the cost, the quality of those improvements. But um, there's also some environmental concerns, I think, that need to be addressed because it looks like there's still more of that cleanup to complete. Mm. Um, it was reported. uh that the federal government was on track to finish the cleanup by 2028. So then DeSoto annexed like 6,000 acres of this. And um, Fox Local 4 ran a report with a sentence in it that gave me pause. Uh, it said, under the original agreement, the entire 9,000 acre property was to be cleaned up to residential standards. Since two thirds of the property was annexed into the city of DeSoto, the cleaning standards for the 6,000 acres will be determined by the city. Mm. Which oh. I want to be optimistic yeah. about, but let's hope that overseeing this project in the city, they don't bow to pressures to kind of push this through and that the due diligence takes place to make sure that this cleanup is to standard, which was the original plan. Because you worry, I think, about sloppiness as yeah. as they're trying to fast track this because it looks like we have a lot riding on this cleanup process. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, have they taken on more than they can achieve yeah. it's kind of a scary proposition to me so i would like to see this play out a little bit and hopefully they can make it work but there's a lot going on here but we've talked about a need to either reuse or remove blighted property a lot mm -hmm. and uh so if they do it right i think it is a great scenario oh for sure um, i totally agree just because you know we'll talk about it a little bit later but um 
comparing it just on a base level to like Foxconn in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. where that was, you know, a thousand acres of premium farmland. This was, you know, poisoned land that was otherwise unusable. Right. And I mean, I think that all the stakeholders involved, while they do have incentive to speed the process, they also have more incentive, in my opinion, to get it right. Because if they don't get it right, I mean, what, you just have a state-of-the-art facility sitting on uh, toxic land? Well, let's remember, Oklahoma was also had one of these mysterious tax incentive programs put out there as well. So to your point, Anna, if this falls apart, they probably have other options. Other options. Too. Although I do hope that since it's such a big number, that there will be a lot of eyeballs on this yeah. process, and there will be a lot of checks and balances. That's my hope. Uh, on Oklahoma, number two again. Yeah, finishing yeah. second. Silver medal. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's second favorite friend. All right. Uh, the company <laughs> picked Kansas apparently due to its business-friendly climate and, of course, always, they say, the workforce, as well as support for innovation, transportation infrastructure, and, Jeff, as you said, the central location. So according to the Kansas City Star, what does business-friendly climate mean? It means a lot of tax incentives. So taxpayers are going to be on the hook for $1.3 billion in refundable tax credits, payroll tax incentives, and training grants. But the scale of the project, I actually, I didn't do the math in terms of how much that's going to cost per job, but, um, you know, this could be an overall good situation, particularly, I think, when it comes to potentially repurposing bl- blighted land. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, Oklahoma, you're going to get the next one. Yep. You're going to get it. But you're going to get some beans of your own, mm-hmm. your own can of beans. That's right. I doubt You'll it. get the next can. I don't think so. No. Jeff says no. It's <laughs> like, I don't think Oklahoma's ever going to land one. No. All right. Our next most popular story. Cisco accuses four largest beef processors of price fixing. The largest food distributor in the nation says the four largest meat processors colluded to inflate beef prices. Cisco filed a federal lawsuit in Texas accusing Tyson Foods, JBS Cargill, or JBS, Cargill, and National Beef of price price fixing. We're going to get there together. The lawsuit says those companies have conspired to suppress the number of cattle being slaughtered at least since 2015 to help drive up the price of beef. The allegations are similar to the ones in lawsuits filed by grocery stores, ranchers, restaurants, and other wholesalers who have been pen- that have been pending in Minnesota federal court since 2020. Similar price f- fixing, I cannot get fixing. You know what? It's not fixing anymore. It's fissing. We're going to fiss go. it. Yeah. I like it. And a similar price fixing lawsuits are also pending in the pork and chicken processing businesses. What were your thoughts? Because uh, this this story sort of broke while we were out uh, a week ago, um, but it was huge for the industry. And it's, mm-hmm. I feel like uh, people start thinking about the food, particularly meat processing industry, and they're going to think about price fixing. Like, I mean, the boiler chicken story goes back, what, like eight years? I know. Yeah. Uh, I can only assume that there are just too many people involved in the supply chain that people are talking about this and that's how it's being uncovered. Um But it just it's concerning. I mean, like, is this what happens when we give control of an industry to a handful of giant companies? Mm -hmm. It sure seems like monopolistic behavior when you consider that these four processors are responsible for 80 percent of the country's beef supply. And obviously it's happening in other protein markets as well. Um, So consumers should be angry about this uh, because the benefits of massive companies are supposed to be efficiencies and cost effectiveness that comes at scale. 
And consumers should be paying lower prices because of that, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, consumers are paying higher prices anyway because the companies collude and um, suppress availability. And for what? You know, so family farms can get run out of business and ranchers get the shaft and consumers get the shaft. Like who wins? These four companies, right? Yeah, that own 80% of the market. So maybe it's time for a breakup. I don't know. Because if JBS is settling um, on another case to the tune of like 50 some million dollars uh, while admitting no fault, of course, then (laughs) they don't seem to have a defense um, that they can trot out there. And, and, you know, I know that that when you settle for 50 million dollars, to me, that indicates that you don't. Yeah, I like how you can say <laughs> we don't admit any wrongdoing, but it sounds like, uh, and the figure is fifty-two point five million mm-hmm. wrongdoings, <laughs> fifty-two point five million admissions of wrongdoing. Right. No, no admission. If, if they had, if they had evidence to show that this was not taking place, then where is it? Because they would have be using it in this other case, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. It's hard to for me to believe that this maybe that this isn't happening, especially when every other stakeholder in the supply chain is saying this is happening. Right. Uh and Jeff, as put on your consumer hat, I mean, you've seen this taking place. I mean, when I uh when I take that cart through the uh, meat aisle, I mean I kind of just put blinders on. You know, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. uh you know what? We're buying whole animals now. We're not even buying meat at a grocery store. Well, I'm kind of lucky there because I actually do. No, that's, (laughs) I mean, it's right off the farm. But, um, so before I get criticized, because we've got a couple of readers who do like to say, like, sometimes I'm not holding people accountable because I take the business side of it a little bit. Oh, pro beef. I am not endorsing collusion or antitrust behavior. Sounds like you're about to. Here's the thing. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Go on. If you have a product that is, it's a commodity, okay, or it's been commoditized and you want to have better margins on that product, you have a right to say, I'm only going to put so much product out there. Now, this is what Ferrari does. This is what Aston Martin does. This is what a number of luxury car makers do. They only produce so many models and they hit a high margin on them so they can continue to operate at the standard that they want to operate at. This gets sticky because you're talking about a food company. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and there for- is. Okay, but you can't prove that all of these companies are talking to each other and doing this. Right. If it's a good business practice, mm. this could simply be copied, mm. okay? Because that is how capitalism works. Right. Now, if they are colluding, that's wrong. I agree. You mm. can't do that. But on the other hand, if this is what they need to do to continue make to continue operating and keep a profit margin, which we know in food is pennies on the dollar. Food profit margins are really tight. We want these companies, these businesses, to operate more safely, okay? We've talked about how many accidents in food manufacturing facilities where there is all sorts of extremely dangerous cutting, chopping, blending equipment in, in use. We want them to be um, cleaner and mm-hmm. better from a quality perspective. There's all sorts of OSHA and FDA regulations that are in there. And in addition to the FDA inspections, they've also got to deal with supplier inspections, customer inspections. There's a lot of people scrutinizing these facilities, as there should be. Mm-hmm. And we want them to comply with all this. We also, especially of late, want them to pay workers a better wage. So if we want all of these things there, which are not inexpensive to implement, mm-hmm. We have to also appreciate that the costs are going to go up. And if they implement a business practice that says, this is what we have to do to maintain our margins, they have a right to do that. Do they have a right to collude? No. Mm-hmm. But if this is what they see as what is best for their business, it's going to be up to the consumer to respond. 
And this is how, I mean, this is a bit more of supply and demand to me than collusion and price fixing. Isn't it a bit odd though that <laughs> four companies that represent 80% of the market all decided to do the same thing at the same time? I mean, you can say that's odd, coincidental. <laughs> Just, you know what? It was crazy. I was talking to this guy at the uh, annual beef meeting and wouldn't you believe it? He's doing the same thing. Crazy. Crazy. Jeff, don't you think it's possibly when you have four companies with that much control over the market, maybe it's time to break them of up? Of course. It's maybe possible. But how in the world do you prove this? No, to break it up. To break it up. Uh, I don't like that. I don't like getting involved. If this is how a company has grown and this is what they're doing. And at the end of the day, yes, it's costing more to the consumer, which sucks. Yeah. Okay, I'm not saying that's great. Mm -hmm. And again, because it's a food product, I think there is a stickler, sticky moral area here. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think you do have to also have some sort of standards that you just want to follow to be a good corporate citizen or just person. Yeah. <laughs> but if this is the way they want to run their businesses, because they see these guys are doing it and getting away from it, I'm going to do the same thing. I don't think legally you should be able to step in and stop them. I don't think they should be subject to a lawsuit. So- they're trying on the other side. Uh, President Biden's administration is now offering $1 billion to help build and expand independent meat processing plants. And I look at that and I see, yeah, that maybe the Biden administration thinks maybe it is time to break it up, but they're not willing to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, they're just like, we'll just put a bunch of money out here and maybe but try see, to take a flyer. But this was the way this this is the way this was going. And yeah. there's a reason why it doesn't anymore, because it's so hard to be profitable making food. Right. It is. Right. It, it's expensive to produce. It's expensive to maintain. It's expensive to hit all those standards and regulations. So how do you get past that? Quantity. You produce more stuff in greater quantity. What do you need to do that? You need a bigger facility. Who has a bigger facility? Mm -hmm. These four companies. But part of the allegations are that uh, they're intentionally suppressing the quantity. They're controlling the yeah they're 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 controlling the supply okay, which is bad. Anyway, I want to go back to Jeff's consumer hat. What does this hat look like? Um, it's kind of like Indiana Jones fedora. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna wear a hat, a consumer hat. I think so that's I what it be. Now you have if, to wear this to the grocery store. Yeah, I, I wish I wish I could pull off a fedora. I cannot. It does not look right. An Indiana Jones fedora. That's even a little spicier. <laughs> um. <laughs> But I tell you what, if you are rocking that at a Woodman's or a local grocery store, well, I don't mess with you. <laughs> I'm just like, mm -hmm. that man's filling that cart with beef and he knows what's going on. I want to be at his barbecue. We covered this in the last episode. It's all bacon and Miller High Life. Uh, well, I mean, well, that, okay. Sorry, I don't want to go to that party. <laughs> uh, so the Justice Department has been looking into allegations of price fixing in the industry at since at least 2020. Uh, but Anna, one of the things that isn't very encouraging is that they haven't provided any updates on this investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They haven't provided updates. But again, coincidentally, the Biden administration put up a billion dollars to maybe prop up any kind of competition. Right. So just a billion. Just huh? completely coincidental. Just going to grab that out of someplace. Right? Yeah. Just a hot you know billion. what? He took a lot of letters from independent beef and he's like, you know what? It is time to do something. All right. I'm uh, pro indie beef. <laughs> All right. Our most popular story this week, if you can believe it. The Dutch won't break bridge for Bezos' super yacht after all. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos commissioned the world's second largest yacht. It's called the Y721. But will he ever get a chance to use it? 
In February, in February, we talked about a century-old bridge in the Netherlands that would need to be dismantled to get the Y721 to open water. What? Anyway. <laughs> February. February. Shipbuilder Oceano. Uh, <laughs> I just think we should be done. I think we should just be done. You know what? Uh, I thought it was a font size thing. It's just not working today. It's just not working. You know what? You got to fist that. We're going to reset. We're going to reset. Uh, shipbuilder Ocean Co. was reportedly planning to pay for bridge modifications, but locals are angry about the plan. Some people even organized an event to throw eggs at the vessel as it passed. Now, Rotterdam's mayor is denying that the bridge will be dismantled. So, Jeff, what happens now? Oh, man. Um, I guess. I don't know. You got to figure something out. It seems like when you look at where Ocean Co. is located and how they have to get this out to like, is it the Black Sea or the North Sea? And then through the English Channel out to the ocean. This is quite the logistics and engineering feat just for a regular size yacht. Mm -hmm. And I guess the problem with this one are these ridiculous sails and masts Mm -hmm. that he wants to put on this. So it looks like some sort of, I don't know schooner yacht combo i don't even it is i don't know it looks weird yeah. if you look at the pictures and what it's supposed to look like but it would seem i don't know can't you just like get it past the bridge and then put the sails on i, I don't know that would seem to what i would want to do yeah I, when we originally covered this story the one thing we couldn't wrap our heads around is how do you go to build the whatever second largest yacht the world's most expensive yacht and not figure out how to get it in the water yeah, I think, I don't know, maybe this is kind of a headline grab thing for Ocean Co., but, I mean, they seem to be doing okay with all the super yachts that they're building. I don't mm-hmm. know if they need a whole lot more publicity. But the owner is a billionaire, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. I don't know. This Crazy. is, it's it's like you want to pay attention to this because obviously everybody else did, but part of you just going like, I don't care, man. I don't care how Bezos gets his super yacht to the ocean. I really I know, don't. Like, Unless it, oh, go ahead. No, <clears throat> I just, yeah, I agree. I'm not crying any, like, big tears over it. No, I'm just waiting for whatever crazy scheme they come up with to get it there. And I'm hoping it is creating the world's second largest helicopters to all yeah. simultaneously lift it. Yeah, like hoverboards. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. Or like, know? what about like a ship in a bottle type situation where they like bend? They fold it. Yeah, they yeah it's all folded. folded and then it just telescopes. the bridge. <laughs> And then pop it back up. Or maybe we even go a little Elon Genius. Musk. We tunnel underneath it. We tunnel under the bridge. These make are all. it deeper. These are we, all billion dollars. We ideas. are not engineers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if that is not clear either. to the audience. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Anna, I know that it's hard to feel sorry for the sometimes world's richest man. Yeah. But uh, I don't. This is just, uh, we talk a lot about logistics in our day to day. Just a lot of people drop the ball on this one. Yeah, I just, including Jeff Bezos, in my opinion, because I cannot believe how ostentatious this boat is going to be. Like, if you are the sometimes world's richest man, like, wouldn't you want something a little bit more inconspicuous? Like, has he not Mm. heard of pirates? Like, what? He is going to be so obvious out there. Yeah. Yeah. When you look at this thing, and it's basically a floating mansion. Yeah. Yeah. And what he wants to do is put 100 foot sails on it. Just so it can be, I think, just so it can be the largest sailing yacht is basically what he's going for here. Mm. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's silly. Yeah. It It is silly and ridiculous. And I read that its height makes it unsafe for a helicopter to land. So Bezos has reportedly commissioned a support yacht <laughs> with a helipad <laughs> to travel alongside it. 
and it is 246 feet. It's called a shadow yacht. And um, I it, love the air quotes that you put on that. The shadow, shadow yacht. Because no one's ever had to have that before. Man, yeah. So it's a new term, I'm sure. His dinghy um, is a second yacht. No, and listen to this. Yeah. So it will be the base for his helipad, but it will also feature meeting spaces, storage for his jet skis, water toys, snorkeling and diving gear. It can accommodate up to 45 crew and guests to give you an idea of the scale of his shadow yacht so water toys you think he's got like some floaty mats out there and yeah he's got like, like a floating uh sloth inner tube or something yeah yeah whatever um, he picked up free off of marketplace and he could probably leave it blowed up <laughs> he doesn't need to even take the air out no he no. has room to leave it blowed up that's at all it, actually <laughs> yeah in his third yacht he keeps up everything already blown up <laughs> so that way he doesn't Much have to go smart through. yeah yeah so that, that's his boat garage, um, <laughs> which just like reading about that is enough to make me want to never buy a single thing on Amazon again. <laughs> like, and I cannot be alone in this because this story about the bridge and him not being able to get his boat out has generated so much gleeful hand wringing from like the public and people reading about it. Just people think it's hilarious. And I think people are glad that your boat is stuck, Jeff Bezos, and they want to throw <laughs> eggs at it. And if it gets unstuck, they're going to throw stuff at it. Otherwise, let it stay stuck. Yeah, it's uh, a <laughs> here, here. I uh, I actually talked to the first person in a long time who had canceled his Prime subscription this week. Really? I had not. I, I'm like, I it had gotten to a point where I just figured everybody had one mm-hmm. um, funding this yacht. Um, so this yacht cost five hundred million dollars or more to build which is gross in its own right. But its annual running cost is estimated to be from 20 to $25 million a year. I mean, and what's crazy is the capacity. You say the shadow yacht can have 45 crew and guests on it. Well, this, the mass, the super yacht can only have 18 guests, but it's it could have, it's going to require 40 crewmen. So, or crew people. And to me, that's just crazy. Like you need more than two crew per max capacity passengers. Well, it's a mansion. I mean, yeah. that's what it, yeah. it's a house. It just yeah. floats. <clears throat> I get it. I know what a mansion is and a I'm boat. Sorry. I can just put them together. I know what a mansion is. <laughs> <laughs> get it out there. Uh, the other thing that I found interesting is so I don't know if it's just calling, if it's just known as the Y721, like if that's its sort of code name right now or if it's like official, a product number or yeah, something. Yeah, or if it's its official name because the yacht is 127 meters long. So they just made it Y and then the length in yeah. reverse. I don't know. It seems, I mean, if you're going to have a super yacht, the naming mechanism is going to have to be But better. every name that you could choose for it is going to be dumb, right? <laughs> I mean, can you think of like the where you'd be like, that's cool. I respect it. Well, did you see what the, <laughs> what was the largest boat in its class was the Black Pearl. So yeah. respectable. Respectable, but mm-hmm. yeah, what is this going to be? The Prime? Yeah, I'm not crazy no. about that name. Mm. Yeah. I had uh, my godfather, when he bought his new boat after he was uh, recently separated from his wife, he named it No More Nagin. And uh, if he not subtle. if he named this boat the Y721 No More Nagin 3, because my <laughs> godfather bought a second boat and that was the 2. But if he named this the 3, I'd be like, I get it. He's still salty. No. <laughs> be a more clever name. Than the Y721. All right. Well, before we move on to In Case You Missed It, we have a word from our sponsor. 
Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back with In Case You Missed It, stories that maybe weren't as popular on the website, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'll go first this week. My In Case You Missed It was about a heat wave, a heat wave that is forcing Toyota to limit production. Toyota is cutting production at an assembly plant in San Antonio, Texas, as a result of a heat wave. On Wednesday, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, took emergency measures to prevent rolling blackouts, including asking customers to throttle back on power usage. Effective immediately, Toyota will shut down production around 2 p.m. and scale back third shift power usage as well. The slowdown could last until mid-August. Now, more than a dozen areas in Texas have already seen record highs reaching up to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. That is crazy. Now, some companies like GM have avoided work stoppages by cutting back on power grid demands while staying up, like <laughs> cutting air conditioning. Now, this made me think about companies that I've seen in the past that actually pay a premium to work in the heat. And I was just wondering, as these companies are cutting, you know, is GM paying a premium to keep running while there's no air conditioning? Is Toyota trying to avoid that? Um, you know, what? Where is the? Uh, what's more cost effective? And uh, it also made me think of uh, Nestle from my hometown because it actually had two sides of the plant. There was a cold side and a hot side. And you made like uh, one and a half times on the hot side, or if wow. not more, to work just because the working conditions were that much more mm -hmm. difficult. Um, I thought this was a really interesting story because, for once, it seems like ERCOT's really trying to get ahead of this one. And uh, some companies are really having to make some tough choices as to how to continue, I mean, throughout the problem. Uh, Anna, what was your idea or your thoughts on the uh, heat wave? Well, it's interesting when you consider how much uh, manufacturing and industry that Texas has been courting. True. Um, does this make Texas less desirable if you look at the future and think this could be a consistent situation? That's a really good point. Like Texas is open for business half days because we can't power you. <laughs> right. Or you can run at off peak times in mm -hmm. the middle of the night. Good luck staffing that. No, that's uh, that's a really interesting point. Uh, Jeff. Your thoughts on uh, working during a 113-degree heat wave? Well, first of all, it's kind of interesting in a microcosm how far we've come in terms of our expectations of the workforce. Mm -hmm. There was a time this would not have even been a consideration. Oh, yeah. Shut the AC off and get to work. So, you know, we've advanced. We've, yeah. You know, You're lucky you had AC. Right. Yeah. So there's something to be said for that, I guess. The other thing that caught me was ERCOT getting out in front of a situation. Mm -hmm. I think it was one of our very first episodes. We talked about the um, sort of everything that happened as a ramification, what they didn't do in, in Texas, mm -hmm. hitting those ice storms and mm -hmm. just people living basically in third world conditions because they did not account for it. And then they got those ridiculous energy bills yeah. um, just for turning the heat on. So 
Good to see him getting out in front. I think Anna makes an excellent point in terms oh. of what this potentially does in terms of recruiting businesses to the to the state. Um, but yeah, it'll it'll. I think this is not a bad strategy in terms of what they're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how how the workforce responds to it. Mm-hmm. Well. And another point that I wanted to mention is just that within this time frame, in, up until uh, mid-August, Toyota already had like seven scheduled uh, uh, days off uh, as a result of like uh, production cuts, stuff like that. So, I mean, if you look at how many business days are actually going to be lost in the next month, it's only about two, three weeks. But, I mean, yeah, it's still going to have a tremendous a impact on Because, yeah. I mean, I think Samsung is there. Uh, and they're cutting as well. Uh, there's some petrochemical companies there that have had to make cuts. Um, and I don't want to work at a petrochemical company with no AC. Like. Well, I mean, the other part of this, too, if they're putting work stoppages in place, people aren't working, people aren't getting paid, and then they've got higher energy bills at home, too, just to make it tolerable there. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a tough one, too, to deal with. Yeah. Hopefully, the weather breaks soon. Yeah. Jeff, you're in case you missed it this week. So I picked out an article talking about Walmart planning to purchase 4,500 canoe electric delivery vehicles. This one caught my eye because not too long ago when we talked about canoe, they were uh, basically their leadership expressed concerns about being viable in the long term. They weren't sure how much longer they could really go on because they didn't have a ton in the pipeline. Similar to, you know, we were just talking about Rivian. They weren't operating at a profit. They're having delivery issues. They're having supply chain issues like everybody else in automotive. So this is interesting because it's $4,500 begin, or excuse me, 4,500 all electric delivery vehicles beginning with what they call the lifestyle delivery vehicle. But there's an option to purchase 10,000 more. So this could really be a lifeline for canoe. You know, at the time we talked about it, I am not a fan of the way these vehicles look from a consumer perspective. As a delivery vehicle, if they're more efficient Mm -hmm. and they can get the job done, I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, So it'll it'll be interesting, you know, to see what happens here. Because like we talked about with all of these vehicles, the proof is going to be in the quality of it once it gets on the road. So it's good to see that it's going to get a chance to get out there in quantity Mm -hmm. and get up to scale. And if they can get this other order from Walmart. You know, this could be this could be what keeps Canoe going and maybe gets them to the next level or to the next step in their progression. It's also interesting when you look at a company like Walmart, okay, we saw Amazon back Rivian. Mm-hmm. Is this them maybe sticking their toe in the water with, with Canoe saying, if this works, maybe this is something we want to get behind even more. They're growing their e-commerce side uh, of things. True. Um, so this, this could be interesting from a longer-term perspective in a couple of different fronts. Wasn't Canoe the company, and I'm sorry if I missed you mention it, but like where all the executives were quitting? Wasn't that Canoe? Yeah. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean – they just missed the boat. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, they left a little too soon, I guess. Potentially. We'll see how it plays out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, we'll see how much Walmart likes what they get. But also, based on how we've discussed Rivian and Canoe and Amazon and Walmart, isn't Canoe just like such a stereotypical Walmart investment? You mean like because it's like the cheapest one? Like they got a, they got a deal on yeah, it. They're like, like let's grab. Look I'm, at this. This company's teetering on bankruptcy. Yeah. Let's make them an offer. Pennies on the dollar. Yep. Um, Anna, your thoughts on the uh, canoe purchase? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we always blast these like multi-billion dollar corporations for having so much cash in their coffers. But I guess in cases like this, it's uh, helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, obviously they can extend, as Jeff described, a lifeline to this company that was really struggling. And hopefully it works out for both of them in the end. Um, All right, let's move on to Anna's in case you missed it. 
What do you have for us this week, Anna? All right. So I selected this article because we spent a lot of time panning this in the office. Mm. (laughs) Um, So I thought people might find it as interesting or as infuriating as we did. Um, Reports have indicated that German luxury automaker BMW is now charging drivers for access to hardware already installed in the vehicle, namely their heated seats. In certain countries, not the U.S., at least for now, um, owners will need to buy a subscription to get BMW software to unlock that little jolt of butt warmth. Um, on a, Ooh. On, anyway. a, on a per month basis, it will run the equivalent of $18 or you can pay up front $415 for unlimited access. Um, without paying, uh, the heated systems are just embedded in the seats and they just sit idle. <sighs> I know that we've had some forewarning about this trend as the idea of like recurring revenue from a subscription model has started to kind of creep into automotive. We've heard other automakers talk about it, VW for one. Um, But actually seeing it in reality made me so insanely angry that I think we need to revolt against this concept because it's just infuriating. Like, Did you get heated? I I got, yeah, I got, Mm -hmm. I got heated. Mm -hmm. A little hot under the collar. little, just... (laughs) But for eighteen dollars, mm-hmm. yeah, I had to turn on that. Um, I don't know. I just like I feel like the only time somebody might want this would be if they got a lower upfront price. Oh yes. But as we know, vehicle That's not going to happen. No, it's not. <laughs> and like anytime soon, no. we know that vehicle prices are higher than ever right now. Um, we know that these systems are going to be already embedded in the vehicles. I am all about companies charging what they have to charge because of what they've got into this, right? Mm-hmm. But this feels greedy and opportunistic to me. I I feel like we're captive, you know, and BMW is going to charge you 99 cents to roll down your window as your car is like plummeting below the surface of like, just, I can't be the only one to hate this concept. It's just like alarming and stupid and just makes me mad. No, I think universally, everybody hates this concept. Everyone hates it. Because if anything, it does not bother me. Of course it doesn't. Get out of here. Not at all. All right. Jeff runs hot. Um, he doesn't. Need, do you use heated seats? So no. Why does it okay, but, bother you? But Jeff, if it were your backup camera, that is different. If this was a safety feature, yeah, I would agree. If this was the defroster, I would agree. It's the seat, heated seat. You can pay four hundred bucks up front if you want it. If you don't, don't buy it. I would rather pay up front for it. Then do that. I, it, that's the option, isn't it? You can pay four fifty up front. Right, you can pay or, for unlimited access, but what I my impression of this is that you're buying the vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're getting a deal on. I don't think you're getting four hundred dollars off the purchase price. I think and this is all aftermarket no, accessories that are already built into your vehicle. So that bothers me. The other thing that I think is dangerous with this is that people are going to try and hack it because obviously yeah. this is an over the air update that mm-hmm. they send to turn your heated seats on. People are going to try and crack that as well as they will with other features that are potentially bricked until you pay for them. And that's where things might start getting dangerous when you're playing with those computers. That's fair. Um, I can definitely see that. But I mean, as a business practice, if they want to charge for heated seats, I mean, there's other options. You don't have to buy a BMW. Right. I know. I just slope though. Like, whereas, you know, no, before we were thinking like when we were hearing subscription services, we were pretty much thinking things that were going to come through the infotainment system. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Now it's heated seats, which seems like something that is a luxury item, you know, not mission critical. But, you know, what if the next step is, hey, if you want power windows, like uh, you have to pay 10 bucks a month if you want your windows to go down. 
I mean, as long as there's an option to hand crank them, I don't have a problem with it. What about cruise control? I mean, like that's actually been suggested, like that that could be one of the subscription model features for, I think think it'd be a crappy business practice. Yeah. But I mean, if that's what they're going to do, that's what they're going to, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, I don't know. I don't think So you're saying that because they're, if they decide to do this, the market's going to react and decide against them and they'll take the hit. And so that's. Unless it's universally done. And if it's mm-hmm. universally done by every single automaker and they put all of these charges in place, then I think you are going to see some backlash and you could probably see some government involvement when you've got something that was a commodity mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's not mm-hmm. being Wait, taken differently. So if BMW and the three other biggest automakers got together, and let's just say they own about 80% of the automotive this. market, and, uh, and they all going? simultaneously decided mm-hmm. to charge $18 a month <laughs> for heated seats, you would think the government would have to get involved. No, I'm saying if every single automomaker, <laughs> oh, okay. if they, all of a sudden they do this, but no, you've got options. Okay. Um, and no, this if this is what BMW wants to do, yeah. like how do you stop them? What would be, what's the breaking point for a feature that you would not pay a monthly subscription fee for? Say that again? Power Maybe. steering. Well, power steering, that's safety. <laughs> if it's safety related, no, Wheels. it shouldn't be. Yeah, and that then you're getting into a whole bunch of stuff with NHTSA and, and stuff like that. But when you're talking about heated seats, even air conditioning, quite honestly, that's a creature comfort. If you don't <sighs> want to pay for it, hey, I just paid 500 bucks to get my AC fixed. Okay, yeah. but that wasn't something I had to do in order for the vehicle to operate Ooh. to function. AC but might be the brand. then then take it off my bill. Yeah, if, I, if yeah. you're like if I'm going to buy a vehicle, like I don't see BMW saying like, okay, but we're lowering the cost of entry for this product. Yeah. They're not. But That's it's true. their product. They can sell it for whatever they want to. You don't have to buy it. I understand. Yeah. But don't you think that if this becomes the industry standard, then we are going to have some, I mean, I, I'm allowed to be angry about it, right? Yeah, 100%. Mm. Mm. And you're allowed to put on your hat and not be angry about it. Mm-hmm. Your Indiana Jones hat <laughs> of righteousness and say, <laughs> you know what? I'll happily pay $18 more. But I, I mean, just actually, pay it up front and just not for, just forget about it. Agreed, agreed. Like uh, maybe that's what they're trying to do. Um, Probably. Because, but to your point, like you'll crank the windows down if you choose a hand crank window versus power windows. You expect to see that price differential when you buy the cars. I know what I'm doing up front. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't feel ripped off. I will make my decision if that bothers me enough. I'll buy a different vehicle. Okay, okay. Whew. You're right. It did get heated. <laughs> I didn't think this would be the one. <laughs> Well, let's move on to our final thoughts before we get out of here this week. Um, I'll start with final thoughts, if that's cool. Yeah. Um, my final thought was I finally uh, I finally finally finished the book Foxconn's by Lawrence Tabak. Um, we had talked about we had talked about Foxconn so many times mm-hmm. that uh, I actually got it because I'm like, man, we should know more about the we should know more about the story. And it is an incredible book that should be required reading for everybody. Wow. And like not just in Wisconsin, but anyone that wants an idea of how. Local governments can work on picking winners when it comes to manufacturing and maybe not having a good track record Mm. when that happens. Um, This is an incredibly well-written book. Uh, Just a couple of typos. But I mean, (laughs) what does it matter if I can't say them out loud? Um, But it is a very good book. Uh, Some of the things that I found interesting um, was that some of the plans uh, with Foxconn. And actually what I would like to do is uh, in the event that you guys are both interested in reading this, I think that if we all read this, this would make a great like standalone podcast. Like maybe we even get some of the readers or the uh, listeners to read it and do like, uh, you know, Today in Manufacturing podcast book club. Are you giving us a homework assignment? I mean, 
Yes. But one that's good for your soul. Um, don't worry, I don't expect producer Eric and Alex to read it. Just record the bonus episode. They, You're welcome. Getting a lot of Man. blank yeah. stares from It's like they don't like extra work. And then we're going to charge you extra to do it every month. I think they can read. I mean, no. I said I don't want to. I want you to have the option to not read it mm-hmm. in they the might that illiteracy a, is a problem. Yeah, they might make like a recorded version of it or something. Um, but in the event that that doesn't happen, some of the things that were interesting were uh, a lot of the incentives were tied to job goal numbers, and uh, Foxconn throughout the world was known. Uh, for being notoriously reliant on interns where they had partnered with universities. And as part of your graduation requirement, you had to like put in a year at Foxconn as an intern. And uh, the other thing is the reliance on this implant software, the software that they use where they basically put in a couple of calculations. I'm simplifying a couple of uh, uh, numbers, and then it punches out the like economic wealth uh, welfare that everyone is going to see as a result. And, the people from the company that create implant software talk repeatedly about how they have to talk to users saying, this is not how our software should be used. (laughs) Please don't do it because they say it can be used for predictions from one to two, maybe three years out. Not as in the case of Foxconn 30 years out. Holy cow. Um, The other was that there was this one part in particular that I think um, one thing that we think about the entire Foxconn debacle, particularly in this part of the state in Wisconsin is how they took farmland from so many people. And um, one thing that was just really cold and telling was that the project manager, Claude Lois, they had this meeting, right? Where uh, they told everybody to come that lived in the area that they were going to basically annex and uh, said, come and we'll let you know what the situation is. Uh, And they talked about how they're going to say all the land is blighted. And this woman, Kim Mahoney, came to the project manager, Claude Lois, former Burlington mayor, hometown, way to go, Claude, uh, and he said, this is my land. We just built a brand new house on it. It was like, it wasn't even a year old. Like uh, they were getting ready to plan their first Christmas there when this meeting came up. She's like, you cannot say this is blighted. And he turned to her and just said, we'll find a way. <gasps> so <clears throat> this it, is a movie. It is a very, it is a, it is a movie. It is a movie with Actors that have to sport a lot of bad hair, a lot of really bad hair. But uh, it's a beautiful story, not a beautiful story, terrible story of cronyism and picking winners. And uh, I just really recommend it. Like, uh, and I hope you guys get a chance to read it and we can talk about it on a podcast. I know that I am. Yeah, I'm definitely want to take a look at this. I'm just surprised that a book that has the cover with Donald Trump and Scott Walker on it made it through your home without any damage. Oh, no, no. no. Well, it's uh, I am a sucker for like nonfiction journalistic writing like yeah. uh um like john krakauer books i'll just eat, eat them like candy you know and this was like right i'm like as i read the first that was a the uh we'll find a way was the end of the first chapter and i'm like put it in my veins like uh, <laughs> uh there is just and another thing that's crazy is how um everything that happened in wisconsin happened in illinois in a separate project with almost the same people um <laughs> And just nobody knew about it. I mean, or a handful of people knew about it. And when they were shouting, it was like, easy, 13,000 jobs, billions of dollars, millions, whatever. And the reason I stress the importance of reading this is when I was reading it up at our cottage in front of my dad, he was like, oh, but no, everything's fine with Foxconn, right? There's the people, they're working, they're building stuff, there's jobs, it's going to be great. And the implications of the land that Foxconn owns 
and the rights they have to it and what they could do selling it to other or like loaning, leasing it to other people could be dangerous. Uh, so again, highly recommend it. Uh, other just really quick final thought uh, this week, my family and I went and saw the world's largest potato and it's not a real potato. Of course it's not a real potato. It was like how many feet long? It was uh, 28 feet long. Who's growing that in the ground? Exactly, which is why I went to go see it. I'm like, what kind of steroid pumped potato have they brought to me? And like, I, as, as soon as I got out of the car, I'm like, I don't smell potato. I don't smell potato. Um, uh, I believe it's got to be, uh, uh, yeah, my wife, Carrie, while I was reading this, this would actually be more indicative of yeah. our household. So I'm reading this uh, on one couch of the cottage and uh, Carrie's reading Fire and Fury um, on the other couch. That's just, you know, where we're at. Um, I also highly recommend that one. Um, but no. Back, I mean, to, back to the potato. But back to the potato. Is it made the out of... The real outrage of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. 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 Get it... the heated seat payments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're uh, moving on. I just, I just couldn't believe it. What is it, made out of foam or something? It's what like is... fiberglass. It's like a fiberglass, spray-painted, not-even-well potato. And uh, I would have gone just for the french fries. I don't even need to see the potato. Like. Well, the, I mean, I was I was so interested. And they had like some fun facts where they're like, it would take 7,000 years to grow this potato. I'm like, yeah, that sort of fact is the reason I'm here. And um, <laughs> they're like, it would take four years to bake it. I'm like, well, I don't know if it was grown in the desert. Maybe it would. But uh, Four years to bake what? The, a potato of that size in the event that it was real. So they had you with the hypothetical facts. So dumb. I was just really like, the one thing that was nice is that, man, in my kids' hearts, that is a real potato, and it blew their minds. Aww. So it's uh, anyway uh, <clears throat> many digressions, but uh, check out the book, see the potato, uh, lower your expectations. <laughs> Anna, what are your final thoughts this week? Well, it's hard to follow all that. I'm sorry. Um, so I'm heading up to Minnesota this weekend to see my bestie and leaving my children. <laughs> With Fun Dad for the weekend. Oh, man. A weekend and, with Fun Dad. A weekend with Fun Dad. And um, they are so excited. It's like he re-strategized because they're very clingy and they never want me to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and so then he realized if he just promises them like every cool thing on earth, they're like pushing me out the door. And <laughs> like just talking about like they have all this stuff. They're going to go to the playground and then get pizza and go to the playground again and then go to a different one and then get ice cream. And just the cackling, like, I am this villain in a Disney movie that's like... <laughs> She'll finally be gone. I know. <laughs> ah, get out of here. On your way. So um, when I return, we'll see what kind of shape things are in. But they are very excited for me to leave. That so. That's part of the fun dad equation, though, is yeah. like... You have to have that house tight when you get back. Otherwise, you can't show the fun dad explosion. Yeah. Because then it's just like... I knew it. Yep. Shambles without me. Shambles. Not doing this again. Mm -mm. Never again. We'll have fun in Minnesota. And Thanks. It'll all be, you know, we're all close if he needs it. Yeah, chance. maybe check in yeah. if you guys are around. Just go just to the parks the, nearby. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's crazy seeing you. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> uh, Jeff, what are your final thoughts this week? Your voice got so high on that. <laughs> I mean, it normally does. Ever since I said fissing, I've really been off the rails. All right. All right. Um, I'm going to get right to the trivia because I'm kind of excited to see what uh, you guys think of this uh, question I got coming up here. But first, the question, the answer, congrats to Larry and everybody else who got it right last week. We're talking about campfires. The three things you want to do, douse it, scatter it, smother it. Mm. Those are the three steps. I didn't know about the scatter. I was just like, douse it and bury it. You're not wrong. Yeah. 
So. I feel I feel like I'm safe there. Yeah, I think you're good. Yeah. Okay. So as we were sort of putting things together today, it is raining buckets outside. Like yeah. It is just really coming down. So it made me think about some of our coverage. Not that we're pending this or trending this way, but like natural disaster coverage. Some Ooh. of the different things we've talked about. So want to know which of the following has gotten the most engagement page views? Which of these sort of natural disasters, if you will? Earthquake, volcano, tornado, hurricane, or wildfire? We have covered all of these quite a bit. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so which one has gotten the most reader attention? Again, your options are earthquake, volcano, tornado, hurricane, or wildfire. So I remember covering at least the volcano because I remember I can't remember what agency it was that created the business preparedness plan for the volcano. But the plan was leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically. What else can you do? Yeah. Get out of there. And we've had a couple of volcano eruptions, like taking out factories and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's crazy. Um, is, it per, is it per story or just the group total, together? Total, Alex. Okay. Yep. okay. Uh, producer Alex wanted to know if it was per story, like individual story or collective? Collectively, yeah. Oh, right. Well, Anna, any thoughts on uh, these natural disasters? I have a thought, but I'm not going to say it. I don't want to. Oh, I like it. I like it. Cliffhanger for next week. Yep. All right. Well. Before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast, and we'll see you next week. Fissing. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.